of peace, joy, and hope are all yours as gifts through the work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and through God our Heavenly Father and the Holy Spirit. Our text for our sermon is Psalm 33, verses 16 through 22. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May our unfailing love rest upon us, O Lord, even as we put our hope in you. This is the word of our Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, over our three midweek worship services, we worked our way around the Advent candle wreath using psalms to see gifts that are given to us that come to us in the light of our coming Savior. We have three midweek services, but there are four candles around that center candle. And so today we will cover that last candle, the candle of hope. And we see, as all of the others, they're connected by that one center candle, that big white candle that represents Jesus. And today we see hope is a gift in the light of our coming Lord. Now our psalmist points out in verse 16, there is no king who is saved by the greatness of his army. What? Look in history. At West Point, military maneuvers are taught that sometimes are thousands of years old, where a brilliant general against the odds of a much larger army figured out a military maneuver that won his victory. But even his brilliance would not have worked if God had not had a plan to use it and allow it. So if we were to turn to government as the cure for our ills, we're going to be let down. It's just a matter of time. God uses governments for the betterment of his church, for the proclamation of his gospel. And sometimes he uses them to discipline us. But if he says their armies aren't going to work, they're not going to work. If he says they are, they are. And so we look, I remember when I was a child uh, having to do drills for in case Cheyenne, Wyoming, the nuclear missile site was hit by a nuclear missile. They had us train what we were going to do in our school. Eventually, Russia was was bankrupted, if you will, in the arms race. But the truth of the matter is even a small little nation that hates America could get one nuclear missile in here before we could retaliate. And the fact that we could wipe them off the face of the earth will be no comfort for those. We could stay up all night and worry about these things. We could find comfort in government programs that hopefully will protect us or we can see that God is in control. If God allows something such a catastrophe to happen, he has a reason and if he chooses that it's not to happen, it will not happen. And we want to remember that because the founding fathers of this country had, even the ones that were Christians, been under the influence of many political philosophers. One of those was Russo. He was French. And Russo had thought that the government actually could, could replace religion 
That, that religion was needed to get good citizens, but that the government could replace that. And it's kind of scary today as people appeal to the amendment, freedom of religion in our own court systems, getting judges who view this wrong way already saying, well, government has replaced that. Government has replaced the way we define marriage and everything else. So if we put our hope in government, it will let us down. It says no hero is rescued by the greatness of his strength. But isn't that what makes a hero a hero? He's ripped, he's buff, he's strong. He has the power to crush you. God determines he's going to get a cold that day and he's done for. God allows somebody to sneak up behind him with a small dagger and stick it in the right place he's done for. Yes, they're made heroes because of their greatness. And yet when God says their strength is not going to work today, it does not work today. So the power of the back, muscle, I'm thankful. God bless the machinery that opened up our church this morning. He decided we were going to have worship this morning. And the muscle of a few of the men, if not one in our church, opened up an entryway for us. God had blessed that. But that's not where we want to put our hope either because strength fails. One little virus can shut it down. He elaborates on that in verse 17. He says, the horse is a deception when it comes to salvation and the greatness of its power will not deliver you. The horse in the time this was written was the tank of its day, the nuclear bomb of its day. But the point of all this is when it comes to your salvation, don't put your hope in muscle, in government or in military might. It is not going to get you into heaven. It won't pry the gates of heaven open for you. We can't earn our salvation. You see, in English, the word hope doesn't equate to what that candle represents, because in English, the word hope either means there's a chance that this is going to happen in spite of the odds and I'm going to cling to that or it's going to happen, but there are odds it won't. There's always doubt. It's just a matter of what degree of doubt. But that is not what scripture means by hope. I love whether we're working in the Greek or in the Hebrew. I love to translate that word instead with confident expectation. Because that's what the Holy Spirit gives you. Our sinful nature fights against it. it. It has hope with doubt and it whispers its doubt. Seems it's designed to make us doubt. But the new man that the Holy Spirit has created gives you a confident expectation. In what? In what that center candle represents. In what our lessons were about. That God took on human flesh. That God was righteous in your place. We confidently expect, we know by the Holy Spirit in our heart, that that baby held in the virgin's arms was God. God choosing to become part of creation to redeem mankind. We know that that man hanging on the cross, dying a criminal's death, is God. We know, we confidently know, as he said, he could have come off that cross in any moment. It was not the cross that killed him. He gave his life. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And there he put it, the only human in history who could do that. All of this gives us a confident expectation that every day, because of him, our sins are removed. And so we're told in verse 18, behold, maybe today we'd say pay attention and we'd bold this. The eye of the Lord is upon those who hold him in reverent awe. 
That is, upon those who confidently expect his committed love. In order to bring about their very existence, rescue from death, and to preserve their life during the famine. Here it is. The word that gets translated as soul, the Hebrew word is nefesh. It's what gives your body life. It's the spark of life. It's what, it's, it's what survives the grave. It's what goes to heaven because of Christ. It's what's going to be reunited with your new body. It's the soul. It's your very existence. And you confidently expect, because God's word, which has been proclaimed to you, the Holy Spirit working through that word has assured you, those promises are yours. And so you confidently expect that you will outlast the grave. Your soul is going to heaven. God has told you so. He's promised you because Jesus Christ lived and died and rose in your place. And the Holy Spirit has made it so. Your sinful nature says, no, you haven't been good enough. But the new man in you hears the word of God and, and slaps that sinful nature in the mouth. Slaps it so hard it silences it and says, be quiet. I know my God has said it is so, and I will hold firm to it. Yes, there is a struggle inside of us. The sinful nature wants us to hope the way English means it, with a lot of doubt. But the new man, created by the Holy Spirit, clinging to Christ through his word, says, I confidently expect this. So, when hard times come upon us, he, famine is used here to preserve their life during famine. We confidently expect that God has promised to provide not just for our spiritual needs, but for our physical needs right up until the time he takes us to heaven. So when hard times come and, and famine comes, we can say, I'm not going to starve to death right up until the time God decides he's going to take me to heaven. If I starve to death, that's how God's taking me to heaven. He's staying true to his promises. Otherwise, he's going to make sure I'm taken care of. When diseases come upon us, and there are many horrible diseases out there, we confidently expect that God is working in that. He's either going to heal us or he's going to use that as the means through which he takes us to heaven. Our confidence is not in doctors. God uses them. We're thankful for them. We ask God to bless them. But our confidence is in God who is at work. And if it's his will, we're going to heaven. We're going to heaven that day. If it's his will that we live 10 more years, we're going to live 10 more years. Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon those who hold him in reverent awe. That's the Hebrew word for faith. It often gets translated as fear. But in English, fear means to be afraid. Those who do not trust in God will be afraid on judgment day. They often show their own fear now in resenting God. But you hold him in reverent awe. And that means God's eye is on you. It means you confidently expect that every minute of every hour of every day, God is ruling over all creation. Even the things that you and I think of as miserable, God is using those for our good. He's using those for the good of our neighbor. And he's going to, we confidently expect him to provide for our spiritual and our physical needs right up until the time he gives us heaven. He gives us uh, what we're called to be before his throne. And if that is before judgment day, we know that he's fulfilled all the other promises. So he will fulfill the promise to give us that new and glorified body. So we see hope is a gift in the light of our coming Lord. Not a worldly hope with lots of doubt, chances of failure. No, a confidence in God's deliverance, help and protection. And so we're told in verse 20, their very existence or soul has waited for the Lord. He is our helper and shield. What if I fail? 
What if that sinful nature gets its sucker punches in and I start to no longer believe that confidently expect that God is my Savior? This word is assurance for you for all time. It says God is your shield. God will send somebody with his word or he will send you to his word and his Holy Spirit will work. He's your shield. He fends off the fiery arrows of the devil for you using his word. And so you wait. You wait for the Lord. Psalm 130 is not the, the, the most oppressing psalm in light of where it begins. Psalm 88 is. But Psalm 130 begins, From the depths of woe I cry to you, O Lord. And he goes into the fact that he knows he's forgiven. And then he says, I wait for you more than watchmen wait for the morning. And that is the picture of the Christian life. If you were afraid the enemy was going to attack, they'd put a, a watchman out who was supposed to sound the alarm if the enemy was there. But darkness was a scary time because the enemy could sneak in up to the gates of the city. When the sun rose, any treacherous plots would be revealed. The enemy's position would be revealed. So he rejoiced in the morning. And that's how we live our lives, brothers and sisters in Christ. We're waiting. We're confident that Christ is going to return because he's come. He's been born. He lived. He died. Just like all the scriptures said, he rose victorious. So we're confident he's going to return. And we wait. Oh, and when hard times come upon us, when famines, physical disease, hurt feelings go through the list, we're confident God is working for our good and we wait. We wait until the light of the Lord when he answers our prayers and we can see his deliverance. So our confident expectation is waiting, knowing God is going to work our best, knowing God is going to return and confidently expecting it, so we just wait until it is revealed to us, till we see his deliverance. And so verse 21 says, Indeed in him our hearts keep on rejoicing. Indeed his whole, in his holy name we have placed our confidence. This is where your confident expectation comes from. His name God uses to reveal everything he does for us. Every name for God in the scripture represents a work he does for you and I. Even the very name Jesus in Hebrew means Savior. Christ means anointed. Same thing as the Hebrew Moshah, Messiah, means the one anointed to save us. But all those names for the Lord represents the work he does for you and I. It's why there's a commandment about the name of the Lord telling us not to take his work in vain. Instead, God has wrote his name all over you, property of God, and we confidently expect we are his property. More than just being an inanimate piece of property, because of Jesus Christ, we have been adopted as his children. So we rejoice in our confident expectation, all the things God uses for his name, that he does all those for us, because he loves us. And so verse 22 concludes with somewhat of a prayer, May your committed love remain upon us, O Lord, and so far as we have confidently waited for you, as we've hoped in you. What it means is you put your Holy Spirit in our hearts, so we confidently expect these things, and therefore, let your committed love remain upon us. We trust that God, as he promises, is going to keep us in the faith until either he separates our soul from our body in death, or, if we're the last generation, when Christ returns. We love the Lord. He's put that in our hearts. So we confidently expect it knowing God never lies to us. God never shirks his promises. 
How can we be confident of that? Because we know that baby that we're going to celebrate in the manger in a few days, that's no ordinary baby. That's God who's taken on our human flesh so he could win our salvation for us. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, as we've worked through this Advent season, we see hope is a gift in the light of our coming Savior. Not a worldly hope with that there's degrees of doubt. Rather, a confidence in God's deliverance, help, and protection. And therefore, we confidently expect his return. And we've seen those four great Gifts that have come out of the birth of our Savior is life, death, and resurrection. Love, God's committed love to us. Peace, we're at peace with God. He's not our enemy. Joy, we rejoice in knowing we're saved. No matter how miserable the crosses are we're bearing, we know God is using them for our good and heaven is ours. And so we confidently expect that our sins are daily forgiven. We confidently expect God is ruling all creation for us. And we confidently expect He's going to return and take us with glorified bodies to him. Amen. Let us conclude our sermon with a prayer. We thank you, Lord, for all the good that you have shown us from the days of our childhood. Continue to multiply your mercies upon us. Keep us in your fear and favor. Cause us to walk in your praise. Protect us from all enemies, both visible and invisible. And grant us, like Simeon of old, to depart in peace through Christ our Savior. Amen.